This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is part two of our Lent 2016 series. Well, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and we have a three-year cycle. Every year we do either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and the readings change, but something that's always true every year is we always read about the temptation of Jesus on the first Sunday of Lent. Now, I think this personally is one of the most interesting stories in the whole gospel. And why do I say that is temptation is something we all have experience of. There is no one who has not experienced temptation. You don't have to even be religious. You can be an atheist or a missionary, a saint or a sinner. Everyone has close-up, personal, direct knowledge of temptation. Everyone. Hence Paul's lament. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. Who can't identify with that? And sometimes as a preacher, you have to worry about examples and things. This is something that might not be true to people's experiences. Well, I ask you, all of us have treasure troves of experience to draw on when it comes from temptation. Just think of this past week. So it's something that affects all of us. And today, one encouraging thing is we find out that Jesus was no different. We remember at Christmas, or so recently, is we emphasize that Jesus is truly God, but he is truly a human being. In every way, he's truly a human being. And Jesus himself was no different. He experienced temptation as we do. In today's episode, we have he was in the desert for 40 days. That's a long time being tempted. And note something. We have it on the bulletin cover. That wasn't the end of it. It wasn't like he did temptation and moved on to other things in his life. It has... It has, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There's no closure. That opportune time will be even a worse temptation when he has to face death. Meanwhile, we might say, well, gee, the temptations Jesus have don't really seem like what I face. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus knows exactly what temptation is. This is not something he has to think about. He has direct personal experience. So what questions can we ask ourselves this morning about this first gospel of Lent? Well, first we could ask, what can we learn from this experience of Jesus? Second, why does God permit temptation? I mean, is there anything good that can come from it? And third, How can we actually deal with temptation in our lives, since it's just a fact of our lives, how we can deal with that? I think a good starting point is to look at two very important facts about this passage. Now, the temptation appears in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it always appears in the same place, immediately following Jesus' baptism. Immediately. What a change. Because Jesus' baptism is talking about a spiritual mountaintop experience. Can it get better? The heavens are torn open, it says in Mark's, Mark's gospel. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and we have the affirmation of God. This is the Son I love. That's about as good as it gets. But now, suddenly, we're in the opposite. We're in a spiritual valley. Solitude. He's all alone for 40 days. And opposition. Instead of, you're my beloved Son, what he's hearing, we heard the, t- the reading. If you're really the Son of God... If you're really the Son of God, not affirmation, but questioning. 
Now, there's a second thing that, uh, by the way, this is a second thing that really should intrigue us here and be find troubling, is how did Jesus get to that place of temptation? Did he sort of go on a retreat and this sort of happened? No. We're told that the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, led him to that place. Unless we think, well, he led him to the desert, but the temptation sort of happened, Matthew's gospel removes all doubt. Matthew says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That was the purpose. That's sort of troubling and confusing. God leading Jesus into temptation, into harm's way. Now, it's also troubling and confusing as James tells us that God tempts no one, doesn't he? The Apostle James says in his letters, he says, when you're tempted, don't say, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what's going on? Something seems to be in conflict here. What's going on? God tempts no one, and the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus to temptation. Well, let's go back to when all of this occurred. It was right after Jesus' baptism. This is the time again when the Father dramatically reaches out in love. He says, this is the Son I love. A tremendous affirmation of Jesus. What's a, when we call for love, think of it in our own lives. I don't know about you. If I tell someone I love them, I expect a response. Other than, gee, the weather looks good today. You know, I would take that amiss. I normally would assume that any of us, we say we tell to a friend how dear they are to us, we expect someone's going to say something. So actually what we find here is the temptation is actually a special place. It's Jesus' response to the Father in flesh and blood. And it's powerful. What a response. The world changes. Remember Adam, what happened? He faced, he faced Satan one-on-one, -on -one, and he said yes to Satan and no to God. Here Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, faces Satan, and he says no to Satan and yes to God. He's the reverse Adam. We talk about the second Adam, you know, the, uh, the, the second man. Okay, the second thing, he also reverses the story of Israel. Remember, after all the things God, and the, God did for Israel in the desert, taking them out from the land of slavery, taking them across the Red Sea, what's the next thing to happen? They're hungry. They miss bread, and they start grumbling against God. Jesus, we're told, is hungry for bread too. But instead of grumbling at God as he's invited to do, what does he do? He says, that's not the main thing. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He faces exactly the temptation of Israel, but has a completely different answer. He faced the temptation of Adam and has a completely different answer. So God used this. He becomes the new Adam. You know, he becomes the new Israel. Now, the same thing is true in our lives. God uses temptation to provide us an opportunity to respond. Now, we might say, wait a second, why aren't words enough? Because after all, I'm sure Jesus in the Jordan, it says he was praying at his baptism, that he was expressing his love to the Father. Well, wasn't that a response? But there are responses and there are responses. One of the stories I really love in the New Testament only appears in one place in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 21. It's a story of two sons. I love this. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to him, and he answered, I go, sir. 
but he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first. I want you to think about this. Again, we have two sons. The first one says, no, I've got other things to do. But he says, ah, he ends up and shows up. The other one is all good intentions. Sure, I'll be right there, but just never gets around to it. I bet both sons were surprised. You see, there's no reason to believe their responses weren't sincere. The first son probably didn't feel like that he changed. In action, his real response was what he did, and that was powerful. The second son honestly thought he was saying yes, but when it came to the crunch, it was no. So we call this a defining moment. It's a special moment to really say yes in a profoundly meaningful way. And we have a wonderful example that's in the book of Genesis. We have Abraham, the father of all believers, the model of faith. And by the time we, get, we start out, Abraham's invited to leave everything behind and follow God into an untold place. It's sort of like saying, get in the car, I'll, show you, I'll tell you where we're going once we get going. As an old guy, I think of Abraham as at the end of his career, as saying, gee, I don't want to leave the retirement accounts. This is not the time I feel like new things. But Abraham said yes. God made a preposterous promise to Abraham. He and his wife were old, way beyond childbearing. He said, you're going to have a son, the two of you. And it said he believed. It was very important. It was reckoned to him as righteous. He believed. But still, that wasn't enough. Despite all of that, something special happens. Later called the binding of Isaac is what Jews call it in the, in the Old Testament. God says, take the son, the one I gave you, the one you love. Take him and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, with great pain, goes and does that. He's about to slay his son. God says, no, stop, stop. But what does God actually say at that moment? It's powerful. God says, now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know. The word know is very powerful in the Hebrew Bible. We may not be aware of this. For example, people who remember old translations of the Bible would talk about intimacy with husband and wife and say Adam knew Eve. It doesn't mean that he just met her or didn't need name tags. Okay, it meant, it meant something very, very profound. It talks about going to Sodom. It says, I'm going to find, I've heard reports, I will find out, then I will know. But here he says of Abraham, until this point, this is the moment. This is the decisive moment. Now I know. And what does he mean is that action took his yes to a whole different level. It was an opportunity. That allowed him. I think Abraham changed. I think he surprised me. We know he had good intentions because he said yes to God, but his actually going through with it to that moment changed him. So God could say, now I know. His obedience took that yes to a new level. But what about James saying that God doesn't tempt us? Well, he doesn't. God tests us, the enemy tempts us. And this isn't a play on words. It's a big difference. Testing is, is aimed at success. My wife teaches kids Latin and Greek. You can imagine what a thankless task that can be. And she works so hard. She loves the stuff. And she does everything so they will succeed. Everything. She would love every one of them to pass their test. So the goal, her goal from start to finish is for them to succeed, to do everything to prep them to succeed. Testing is about success. It's something we have to go through, but the aim of every teacher is to use that test to bring kids to a new level. Temptation is the exact opposite. It's about failure. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's meant to have a bad result. So God, however, God uses temptation as a test. 
Now, we would say, well, why would God actually use the devil? I mean, aren't there other kinds? Why would he actually use the force of evil for this test? Well, one thing we know about the enemy, the enemy normally tempts us by taking good things and twisting them to evil purposes. He takes perfectly normal urges and desires and things and twists them to harm. That's what he does. He perverts things to evil. Well, God can twist things too. God twists things to good. In the story of Joseph in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Joseph, um, his brothers are jealous of him. And imagine this for sibling rivalry. He's sitting here at the bottom of, of, of a pit while they're arguing, do we kill him or just sell him as a slave? <laughs> what a family, family dynamic, family of origin. Okay, what a dynamic. So he's sold off as a slave, and he goes down, and things don't end there. He's falsely accused. He spends time in prison. But there's a reason behind all this. God uses him in Egypt, puts him in a high position, and shows him the future so he can actually arrange for all the grain in Egypt to be stored up for a famine that he knows is coming. And it won't just feed Egypt. It will feed other nations, including his own family, who during the famine will come down. Now, what happens is Joseph, when his family comes down, they're looking for grain. They meet Joseph, and Joseph forgives them. Hugs and kisses and all those good things. But those kids, given how they behaved, said, this is probably isn't over. So as soon as dad dies, they figure they were just waiting for dad to go. Now he gets after us. Didn't want to hurt dad's feelings. So after all these years, he comes and said, they come again and say, we hope you'll forgive us. And that's why we have the vo- the, those verses on the page. He said, I know you did it for evil. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. That's what God does. And if we ever forget that, just look at the cross. We do understand the people crucifying Jesus weren't trying to save the world. It was a hateful, despicable. There's never been a more evil act in human history. Complete, spiteful evil. Nothing good of it from start to, start to finish. And yet, somehow, that act, when touches God touches it, becomes the source of all forgiveness in life. That's what God does. Satan twists things for evil. Satan means it for evil, but God means it for good. Now, how do we handle temptation in our lives? I'd suggest five things that are useful, very important us to remember about temptation in our lives. First of all, remember the story today. Satan points out in the psalm we read that um, God says if you fall off a pinnacle of a, of a tower, he will pick you up, so why don't you jump? And his answer, you don't test God. The temptation that God can use isn't the temptation we run into. It's the temptation we're running away from, is we don't tempt God. We do not put ourselves in harm's way. Hence, our daily prayer, lead us not into temptation. We don't look for trouble. You know, we know that when it comes, inevitably, God will be there, but we have to do everything to, to avoid temptation. In practical terms, there's something in a moral theology called the occasions of sin. What it means is we have patterns, and they're often perfectly innocent things we do that lead us to places we know in the past that we don't want to go. Take a non-sin type of example. Let's suppose somebody's trying to give up smoking, and they find out, when do they really like a cigarette? It's after dinner with a cup of coffee. So for them, that cup of coffee will be a special trigger. We all know things in our lives. The thing itself is innocent, but... You know, we know where this is going to lead. So what we need to do in fleeing temptation is we need to, again, root out not just sin, but the occasions of sin, the things that start that pattern in our life. So again, our first, our first rule in fighting temptation is 
we, we, we never put God to the test. It's the temptation we can't avoid. It's not the temptation we, where we throw ourselves in front of the bus. He tests us where, when, and how he wills. Second, we need to know what we're up against. You see, James, again, talking about temptation, says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So he's saying the actual root of temptation is in us, in our fallen nature. That's true. Remember we said the enemy can use these things, uh, use everything for evil. So the ultimate source, so it's true, the temptation comes from inside of us, but it's Satan who uses it, which makes it extremely powerful. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Willpower is not enough. You know, I'm obviously an old man, and I've got to tell you, when I was in grade school, we, had, we were facing in the Cold War the possibility of nuclear war. And I remember as a kid in grade school during the Cuban Missile Crisis, people thought we might actually have a nuclear war. And people were concerned for their children and for lives, so they wanted to protect us. And here's how it went. Here's the protection they came up with. Get under your desk, put down your head, and put your hands over your head. I cannot make it up. And even as a little kid, you think, this doesn't really seem like a plan. So it is with us when we're facing the forces of spiritual wickedness saying, I will rely on self, you know, on my willpower is folly. It's folly. We're, we need, we, the good news is God's grace will always be sufficient, but we will always need that grace. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, no temptation has ever overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... He will provide the way of escape. And actually, a consciousness of our weakness is actually a strength. You know, one thing I think back in Boy Scout days and things, they tell you that if you're in a boating accident, let's say, about, let's say you're a mile and a half out from shore and you're in a boating accident, that if you're a swimmer, your temptation might be, well, let's swim for shore. But you could very easily be overestimating your abilities as a swimmer and you could drown. What you do, no matter how good a swimmer is, you stay with the wreckage and wait for help. You stay holding on to stuff and floating and wait for help. Knowing our weakness knows that we know to turn for help. We wait for God to arrive with a rescue party. We don't swim for shore. Now, Paul, who knew temptation intimately, said, look, he, one of his temptations he calls a thorn in the flesh. He said, three times I begged God to stop this in my life. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Go on. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast of more the gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So our weakness is not a matter of feeling bad. It's realizing there will always be help, but I need to, I need to look for that help. It's not going to be me. So our second point, again, is we need to know that even though the, the source of our temptation comes with the side, the, the enemy uses it, and the enemy is a tremendous spiritual power. Look at his track record, his trophies everywhere. And so the answer we have to have here is we need God's grace, no shame in that, but it will always be there. And knowledge of our weakness, instead of discouraging us, is an encouragement. It means we'll never make the foolish mistake of trying to swim alone. The third point is we have to accept that there will never be closure. Temptation is not something you do and then move on. It will be temptation as a lifelong affair. 
never goes away. Again, in our bulletin verse, we're told by Jesus again, the devil went away till an opportune time, talking about his, his, his death. But in the interim, he was pretty busy as well. So we don't, this will never go away. It's always going to be there. You know what it's like? It's like a chronic illness. As you get older, a lot of us have chronic illnesses where you have something where you know that there are certain triggers that will trigger things off, will make things bad. And you can do a lot to reduce this, but you still need the medication. Just the fact that you want to reduce these things doesn't change the fact that you will always need the medication. One of uh, Bishop Stewart's, one of my favorite lines, there's so many to choose from, is we had a campaign called, um, Not Ashamed to Need Jesus. So no matter how much spiritual growth we have, we'll make growth, we'll always need the medicine. There will never be a time where we don't need that medicine. That's folly. We'll always need it. And there's a special blessing about this. Why is it a blessing to know that it's always going to be like this? Have you ever known people who are sort of like diet bullies uh, or exercise bullies? They lose 10 pounds and suddenly they're looking at everyone in their lives and telling you, you could lose 10 pounds too if you had any self-control. You know, they're out there saying, you know, I have muscles now, you don't. Okay, this could, you know, if you had any, if you had any ambition, you could do this. And they're insufferable. We have a story, and we have in the Bible a story of a man. I love this. There's a Pharisee who goes into the temple, and this is an honest person. He says, Lord, I'm so grateful I'm not like other people. Okay. So what stops us, the real blessing, is our weakness makes us that we're never like that. We know that it's not from some tremendous act of self-control. From beginning to end, it's always grace. It will always be the medicine. It will always be the grace. Then we look at different, other people differently. It's not that they didn't try hard enough we will realize the only reason I'm in this place is I'm reaching out to that rescue party that keeps coming. So again, what we want to remember, our third point, is the humility to accept there will never be closure. But that's a good thing because it keeps us humble. It, remind, it brings us closer to each other. Instead of looking at spiritual success as something that moves us away from others, we never forget where we come from and where we still are. A fourth is this is very important in a lot of people's lives is temptation is not sin. This is really important. The enemy does a lot of damage with this. Temptation is not sin. You know, a lot of people think because they're tempted, they, have, they want to do bad things. We all know this. That the fact they want to do bad things is sinful. As a priest, I have people confessing temptations all the time. And I'll keep saying, well, what did you do that was bad? <laughs> temptation, you know, confession about what did you do? Temptation isn't a sin. Think of it this way. Temptation is the phone rings. Sin is picking it up. It's really that simple. Temptation is the phone rings. And it can be a pretty long ring. Keep ringing and ringing. Think of telemarketers. But basically, temptation is not sin. Sin, what we call entertaining sin, is what they say in theology, is simply picking up the line. And why is this important? He says, by the way, he said, resist the devil and he will flee from you in James. Is one of the biggest tricks of the enemy. It happens all the time is people have temptation and they think because they have these thoughts they've committed the sin already. So they surrender without a fight. They're in the citadel and they just open the gates and give up because they think the fight's over. And what's our answer to the enemy when he tells us, look at you, look at this symbol, look at the things you're thinking. Is, you mean like Jesus? He was tempted in all ways, but without sin. He was tempted in the desert. Clearly temptation doesn't mean sin. 
That's really important because the discouragement and temptation really bogs us down. It's like trying you know, to, to go with a bicycle through mud. You know, it really can bog us down. So again, our fourth thing is to remember, temptation is not sin, no matter what the enemy tells us. Again, it's not the phone ringing. It's our answering the phone that's sin. Actually, temptation praises God in the sense that a temptation overcome. When we say no to sin and yes to God, the angels sing. It's a beautiful moment. There is nothing. Temptation can be an opportunity to bring a special offering to God. And finally, the fifth point is let's focus on yes and not no. The enemy loves to put things in negative terms. Look at the very first temptation. You remember what his first words out of his mouth are? Is it really true that God said you can't eat any of the trees of the garden? Well, if you ever have a more, more preposterous thing, it's exactly how there's one tree, everything else of it. Is it really true? In negative terms, the answer should, you know, needs to be for us always focusing on the positive. Because actually, the answer to God is always, think of it this way, we don't cheat on our taxes not because we're saying no to dishonesty, we're saying yes to honesty. We don't cheat on our spouse not because we're saying no to adultery, we're saying yes to fidelity. In all of our sins, we're not saying no. The devil loves working in that place, by the way, negative place. He tends to win there. But we simply, I'm not saying no to anything. All I'm saying, I'm saying yes to these things. I'm saying yes to God. All, like Paul says, everything good, everything lovely, everything worthy. Think of these things. So don't let the enemy in our temptation set the rules of engagement, set the conversation. We need to immediately turn to the positive side. What is the yes? Satan always has the no. But remember it says, Paul tells us Jesus is God's eternal yes. What is the yes in the situation I'm being asked to have? So our fifth thing is not looking at negative, immediately turning to where can I say yes to God? Not focusing on the notice and saying yes to God. So our conclusion, I guarantee you all of us will face temptation this Lent. I promise you. Even without prophetic gifts, I promise you that's true. Okay. There's something really wonderful about Jesus' life I love. It's a theme, again, from Bishop Stewart a number of years back. I'm such a plagiarist. Okay. But uh, from a number of years back, is that everything Jesus touches, he changes. It's a theme in the Gospels. Remember with lepers? is normally if you touched a leper, you became unclean. But Jesus made the point to actually heal by touching them to show the universe change. When Jesus touches a leper, he doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. Everything Jesus touches that is broken, that is hurt, that is evil suddenly becomes good, even the wood of the cross. Well, guess what? Today we're told that Jesus touched temptation. Jesus personally touched temptation. And that means it will never be the same again. It's our now a powerful opportunity to respond to God in a deeper way, a profound way. So let's pray this Lent, that God will change the water of our temptation into the wine of faithfulness. And that God can say of us, as he said of our father Abraham, now I know. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.